This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. From the New Books Network, this is New Books and Geography. I'm your host, Dino Kadic. Asylum has become impossible to ignore. Even as a record number of people around the world find themselves displaced, governments are accepting fewer and fewer refugees. Asylum claims are a crucial mechanism for ensuring that those who don't have access to organized refugee intake programs can get to safety. Safety to which they're legally entitled under the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Convention on the Status of Refugees. But you wouldn't know it from looking at the way wealthy countries treat asylum seekers. Allison Mounts' new book, The Death of Asylum, Hidden Geographies of the Enforcement Archipelago, shows us how we came to this place, to the physical, ontological, and political death of asylum. She follows the foreclosure of possibilities for asylum to the remote islands and detention centers that have been built to keep state violence against asylum seekers out of the public eye. And she shows us how, against all odds, activists are piercing the veil of silence to reveal the enormous resources being dedicated to pushing away some of the most vulnerable subjects in the world. Alongside her written work, Allison is also producing a podcast on migration issues called Displacements, and recently released a documentary called Safe Haven, and more on that in the show notes. Earlier this month, The Death of Asylum won the American Association of Geographers Globe Book Award for Public Understanding of Geography. Allison Mounts is Professor of Geography and Canada Research Chair in Global Migration, and she's the director of the International Migration Research Center at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. Allison, welcome to New Books in Geography, and congratulations on winning the AAG Globe Book Award. I think it's well-deserved. Thanks so much, Dino. Thanks for having me. Um, so many of the geographers listening to this podcast probably know you as one of the most important figures in changing the way we think about political geography, Um, Folks in migration studies will know you um, for having really successfully articulated the importance of space and place. Um, But for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book? Sure. And let me first say that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm Alison Mounts, and I'm a migration studies scholar and a political geographer, as you said. Um, I'm based in North America. I live in Toronto and I grew up in the States, which is kind of significant to how I discovered geography. 
Um, but my work is generally about borders and about migration policies and migration journeys and the ways that those often are not commensurate. Um, yeah, what else would you like to know? If you could just chart out a little bit about your kind of disciplinary trajectory, how you came to work in geography and migration studies. Sure. So I really started out as a migration studies scholar, and I I came to geography as an undergraduate, but I actually didn't major in it. Mine is a very typical story of, I think, um, people who grew up in the U.S. So many people don't study geography growing up in the U.S., and so you have to kind of wander into it as an undergraduate if you're lucky enough to be on a campus where it's being taught, and that was the case for me. I was a sociology major and a major in Latin American and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College, and I was very lucky um, during my sophomore year to wander into an economic geography class that was being taught by Richard Wright. And the truth of the matter is I wandered into that class because I knew I should understand economics better, but I was actually terrified of taking a class in economics. And so I thought, oh, economic geography, that's different. That's interesting. What is that? And it turns out I absolutely loved it. Um, and I always knew that I was interested in studying people, but something about studying geography just clicked for me. It made sense as a way of understanding the world. So um, I started to study geography, but didn't major in it, and then eventually went to grad school to get a master's degree and a PhD in geography. Um, but my, my interest in migration actually preceded that and really comes from the city that I grew up in which is a small city in the Hudson Valley, um, north of New York City, called Poughkeepsie, New York. And I became interested in migration because during the 1980s, when I was growing up there, um, there were a lot of people moving from Oaxaca in southern Mexico um, directly to my home city of Poughkeepsie and were really transforming the city and particularly revitalizing the downtown, which had been quite abandoned um, and so I was very interested in, in how people had come to, to live in and, and revitalize a city that so many people I grew up with were eager to leave because it was an economically depressed area. So that transformation really captured my attention. And the first ethnography I did was with um, the transnational Oaxacan community of people who were circulating between various small towns in Oaxaca and Poughkeepsie. Um, and I later became interested in political asylum, and that is uh, an interest that sustained a lot of my work in the time since. Great, thanks. Um, so this book comes about a decade after your first book about asylum, um, and it's been a very, very consequential decade, I think it's fair to say. Um, so before we kind of dive into the death of asylum, I think it'd be useful to just get a sense of how these asylum systems emerged, um, what going through the system has been like historically, um, and the kinds of changes that have prompted you to write about this so extensively. Sure. Um, it has struck me that those two books, 10 years apart, um, just their titles tell a little bit of a story, one called Seeking Asylum and the next, or the, the other, The Death of Asylum. 
Um, but I should add there was one more book in between, which I wrote with my wonderful colleague, Jenna Lloyd, which is called Boats, Borders and Bases, which is actually a lot about the history um, of the criminalization of asylum seekers coming to the United States in particular and how <clears throat> that really fueled the growth of that detention system in the United States, which is the largest in the world. So, I mean, asylum is um, in law very closely related to um, the same convention that has to do with refugees seeking protection, people who are displaced from home and in search of a safe haven. Um, and it is really about geography. It's about people um, traveling and uh, looking for a place where they can find that protection um, based on a well-founded fear of persecution were they to be returned home. And um, this was, of course, enshrined um, after World War II, uh, the convention relating to the status of refugees, and in the time since has been heavily influenced, I would say, by geopolitics, um, by relationships between states, and by what community of people or what community of states or state authorities are, have been willing to sign on to that convention, um, to implement uh, or operationalize its principles, um, and how those commitments are influenced heavily by both national and international politics. In other words, um, a country can be a signatory, um, but not necessarily devote the resources or have the political will or political support um, to, to be a a robust signatory to robustly um, make it possible for people to have their asylum claims heard. And in fact, um, states can, at the same time that they implement um, or operationalize these principles in the form of asylum systems or processing systems, um, they can do things that simultaneously undermine them. And that's what a lot of the death of asylum is about. And in fact, it's what um, my first book, Seeking Asylum, was about as well. It's about how governments sort of play games with geography to prevent people from landing on sovereign territory where they have, where people will have more access or better access or more robust access, presumably, um, to the right to, to make a claim or to seek asylum. And so there's a lot of playing with geography to thwart people's access to asylum systems. And that happens on mainland sovereign territories as well. So there's lots of research, for example, about um, detention and the idea of remote detention, the idea that when people are being detained, um, there's more mediation of their access to asylum. So I would say from the time I started studying asylum many years ago to the present, We've seen a gradual erosion of people's rights to seek asylum, and that geography is always central um, to these stories, whether it is the fact that people are detained remotely or the fact that the location of their arrival in a country influences whether they're able to access asylum or how, um, or whether it's the ways that state authorities are operating far from mainland territories long before people ever reach sovereign territory early in their transnational journeys or early um, or closer to home where they've been displaced or where they've departed, um, state authorities are working to uh, inhibit their migration or inhibit their, their modes of accessing asylum.
So um, I guess I'll just go straight into the <laughs> how that relates to the argument of the death of asylum, which is to say, you know, when I, I, I started researching um, how governments were moving borders offshore through their policing practices. And I was doing this research in Canada at first, um, and I was alerted to the ways that Canada was studying what other countries were doing, the ways that countries were sharing best practices, and the fact that these practices were moving quickly around the world from region to region. And I was particularly interested in how this was happening in relation to boat migration or migration at sea. And so at first, I used to use the language of the erosion of asylum or the erosion of access to asylum. But over time, uh, things have progressively grown worse. Um, Things have deteriorated. And so uh, in the process of writing this book, I began to write more about the death of asylum. So I'm really curious about um, these geographical games that you talk about. And one thing that strikes me is that the the system that asylum was built in sort of is very different from the world that we live in today. And it really seems like the, the geography of asylum has become extremely bifurcated, right? So you have this handful of um, states like the U.S., Canada, states in the EU, Australia, New Zealand, and then you sort of have everyone else. And so these best practices that you talk about, they're really shuttling between um, these very wealthy countries. Um, and meanwhile, people are kind of moving and trying to get to those countries and making do um, in the meanwhile in the kind of second countries in between. So I'm reaching you from Bosnia, where tens of thousands of migrants from the Middle East, from North Africa, from Afghanistan are sitting in these really squalid camps um, and really having a tough time because different uh, practices of bordering, ideas about bordering have reached nearby Croatia, um, which has become sort of the edge of fortress Europa. And so I'm wondering um, what, what you think that that bifurcation has done, or if you think that was sort of baked into the system in a way from the beginning um, and how that shapes the way things are now? I think um, I don't get the sense that that was baked into the system from the beginning. Often when you look back on different regional and national histories of exclusion, um, I think often, especially with regard to boat migration, there are these cycles and patterns that we can discern over time. Um, But often at the moment that something happens or, you know, having interviewed for my, for that first book, Seeking Asylum, a lot of people working in government who were responding to boat migration, there's something very ad hoc seeming um, to them, to the way that they're responding to various crises, to use that term, which I know is a highly contested term um, that I've written about before. But I think, um, you know, there is something to the presentism of the crisis, right? Like that is a longstanding recurring theme um, in looking at how governments respond to migration generally or mass migration, but specifically uh, migration 
uh, by sea, and specifically the migration of asylum seekers. So there's something to that particular category of people and states, as you say. Um, and so I, I do think, you know, there's that whole issue of um, this notion that refugees are supposed to be powerless victims, right? Like they're supposed to be in the kinds of sites that you just mentioned, you know, in encampments, in detention centers. That's the geography um, that I think takes hold in, in the general public's imagination and maybe even in the imagination of, um, you know, authorities who are working at very high levels on the issue. Um, and so there's something about asylum seeking and asylum seeking by boat that becomes an affront to that idea, right? The idea that people utilize their own resources um, to exercise agency in, and mobility, right, to move, uh, which is, a, of course, a mundane, routine, normal part of human existence, human migration. Um, but those particular migrations become framed and narrated and narrated to publics as crises. Um, and so they invoke particular stances and reactions, you know, all of which occupy um, newspaper headlines daily from, you know, the border walls and fences, the hardening of borders, detention centers, um, interception at sea. And so I think um, for the countries that have uh, a lot of resources to put funding into the kind of spectacular responses that we see along territorial borders at, on land and at sea, um, we see these incredible contradictions, right? On the one hand, countries that you just mentioned that are managing refugee resettlement programs um, and perhaps desirable destinations um, because they have managed migration systems, because they have strong enough economies, um, because they have legal avenues and communities and all kinds of reasons why people um, would try to get there to seek asylum also become um, the strictest enforcers of the borders with regard to asylum seekers. So we do end up with this um, incredibly uh, polarized and kind of checkered map of the globe with certain sites that become, at the same time that they're kind of desired destinations for people seeking asylum, they're also the ones that are investing the most resources in shoring up their borders and stopping people from, from reaching them. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I really want to zero in on that kind of idea of spectacular responses that you mentioned. Um, you know, if you were, if you were born uh, in an era in which asylum has been criminalized all your life, I think um, in some ways I might be part of this generation, although I actually came to the U.S. as a refugee. But um, you might just assume that there's some sort of natural relationship between asylum and detention. Um, and particularly in the last decade or so, um, sort of culminating in the Trump kids in cages moment. Um, and I wonder if you have a sense of the historicity of this relationship between um, asylum and detention and how that came to be? I do. Um, I think 
you know, I can start by answering in the context that you raised, which is the context of the United States. Um, and this is really something that Jenna Lloyd and I explore in Boats, Borders, and Bases um, in our book, where we were living, both of us, in Syracuse, New York, um, in central New York, upstate, and we uh, were very interested in the Batavia Detention Facility which is located in the small town of Batavia, which is in between Buffalo and Rochester, New York. And at the time um, that we were living there, there were um, detention facilities being built in the southern United States, federal facilities, you know, and some of them were close to the southern border of the United States. And so there was a lot of kind of discourse about the idea that, you know, borders, um, uh, or rather that detention centers are being built near borders and that this has to do with irregular undocumented migration and the association between, you know, criminality and migration. Um, and yet we were very curious about this relatively recently built facility in upstate New York, not far from the border between Canada and the United States, um, but probably unlikely to be filled by people, you know, because of its proximity to the Canada-U.S. border. And so we started to investigate that site and its history and how it came um, to be to be located there. And this eventually led us to research the history of a lot of detention facilities in the United States as, you know, geographers asking our basic geographical question, you know, why is that located here of all places? Um, and what we encountered was a very interesting history that had everything to do with asylum seeking in the United States, um, with migration by sea to the United States, and with the construction of facilities. And really that history brought us back to um, both Cuban and Haitian, the arrival of Cuban and Haitian nationals by sea to the US, and also US interceptions of Cuban and Haitian nationals. And what we found um, was that uh, in particular, there was anti-Black racism really built into the history of U.S. interception of boat migration and asylum seekers uh, and in the construction of detention facilities and the movement of people who were originally detained, many of them in Miami, um, and then eventually fawned out across facilities across the U.S., some built on former military bases, others in other places. And those are the kind of idiosyncratic and interesting histories that we unearth in through archival research in the book. Um, but the, the U.S. detention system, it's true, was really, um, really grew out of the response to asylum seeking. And I do think that that history is one that bears out in other national settings. Um, so I think you make an important point that it makes sense that people might associate um, detention and asylum seeking. But of course, that's um, it's not only people seeking asylum who end up in detention. I think people would also associate, particularly in the U.S. context, um, you know, detention with the notion of illegality, right? And as I said, the, the easy association that people make between detention centers and their geography and the southern border. Um, but as I said, we found there's more to unpack there. Um, but yeah, throughout, I mean, these 
large empirical trends intersect for a reason, right? At the same time that we saw the increasing criminalization of asylum seekers and criminalization that happened in many different ways, um, in law, in discourse, in interception, in detention. Um, We also saw increases in migration at sea, increases in investing in in, um, intercepting people at sea. So uh, we have kind of this convergence of the exact association that you mentioned um, between detention and asylum seeking, and I would say also between interception or externalization and asylum seeking, and also with certain kinds of language being applied to these migrations, like the term irregular. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you. I appreciate you um, indulging all these questions that popped up in my mind that could have been apparently answered by me reading your other book. (laughs) Not at all. They're great questions. Um, So one sort of getting into this question of externalization, I think one thing that listeners might not realize is that you seem to be a little bit of like um, the big short of these kinds of issues around asylum. So You wrote an article in 2008 with Jennifer Heinemann about um, externalization and this question of Mm neo-refoulement in asylum. Um, And of course, I mean, these issues were swirling around, I'm sure, for people who were looking. Um, But it's still very impressive that um, you and some of your colleagues, Jennifer and um, Jenna Lloyd, really had a sense of what was coming and all it took was um, these various global crises that happened um, in the last ten or twelve years to really send that into the into the public eye. Um, so I'm I'm really curious. This is not an answerable question, but I mean, how did you see this coming? Um, because sort of like the question of detention, externalization has also almost become self-evident. You know, the Biden administration announced that it's working on um, sort of apply for for asylum from home. Um, So it's become common sense even in the sort of center-left approach. Um, And I'm also wondering uh, what what didn't shake out in the way that you expected it in terms of um, these changes. Well, do you know, I, I, I wish I could take credit for seeing something coming. <laughs> um, I Speculative, you know, speculation terrifies me. And I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a social scientist, so I'm just trying to keep my ear to the ground and um, follow, you know, these kind of curious things that um, don't make sense or that people don't necessarily know about or that I didn't know about, you know, when I, when I first heard about them. And that's how I ended up studying externalization. It was something that was happening very quietly when I started studying externalization in the Canadian context. And probably most Canadians, I would say, still don't necessarily know much at all about 
externalization or that Canada has been a leader in this particular practice. Um, and that's because it's not the, it's, it doesn't tend to be the immigration story that federal governments want to publicize, right? Um, they're more likely to publicize, you know, happy stories about immigration, so refugee resettlement, or stories about, you know, their robust defense of the border, right? Um, when that's what political will demands. Um, but there's something that started much more quietly around externalization. And even, you know, even in the context of what Jenna and I were studying in the Caribbean, um, when the U.S. was intercepting Haitian and Cuban migration, um, that story was also written out of a lot of official reports of that time. At, already um, in the 1980s and especially in the 1990s, uh, the geographical imagination was focused on the border, on the land border between Mexico and the United States. And um, that can really distract people, um, including us as migration scholars. You know, that noise can really distract us from the things that are being carried out more quietly elsewhere. And so when um, there was this very public, very controversial episode that happened shortly after I moved from the U.S. to Canada when Canadian authorities intercepted boats carrying people from Fujian, China in, uh, to British Columbia in 1999 and 2000. Um, I started to study the, the response, and the response was unusual. The response was about um, curtailing people's access to the refugee claimant system through the use of um, detention and remote detention. And what I learned when I started doing ethnographic research with um, the Canadian Immigration Agency was about externalization more broadly, was about how there was this immigration, uh, this figure, the immigration control officer, who's part of a network of people who are operating informally abroad. That was before 9-11, so that network has been much more extensively developed in the time since I did that research. Um, and that's one of those practices, best practices that governments share, um, where they have these networks of people who are operating in other countries where they don't necessarily have the authority, say, to make arrests, but where they work collaboratively with foreign authorities. Um, and so externalization, I think, often is, is happening very quietly. It's not always the very spectacular interception at sea um, that we hear about in the news. And so when I started studying it, it was both the kind of quiet practice, the quiet version of externalization, and also the much more public and visible one that played out as the interception at sea in the case of um, those boats that I mentioned. So, um, so I speak to you not as someone who can predict anything, but as someone who um, simply has interests and curiosities and also um, you know, wants to convey in some way what's happening. And that's really what drove me a lot um, to arrive at the death of asylum, which is that I think people don't really necessarily realize what's happening um, you know, in, in faraway places. Uh, 
that's being carried out by their own government. So say in the case of the United States, the places where the U.S. is detaining or intercepting or operating um, or where Canadian authorities are or Australian authorities. Um, and in that book, I was studying islands, which are a more visible and rather extreme example of some of what's happening um, with remote interception and, and detention. Does that answer your question about externalization? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm keen to get onto the topic of islands and the archipelagic nature of, um, of the death of asylum. But I guess it occurred to me that we should probably say a little bit about the death of asylum itself. So you say in the book that um, asylum is dying in a political sense, in an ontological sense, and in a physical sense. So can you give us a sense of what that means? Sure. Yes. So the book is organized around that argument and it's structured in those three parts. Um, it has to do with the physical death of asylum and, of course, the physical deaths of people seeking asylum, which are often the tragedies that we hear about that call our attention um, to what is happening offshore or in remote detention facilities. Um but there's more to this death. And um, I write in the book about the ontological death of asylum, the fact that all of this externalization, interception actually makes it very difficult to inhabit the category of asylum seeker to enter those processes. Um, and I also talk about the political death of asylum and the fact that um, be precisely because people don't know what's going on as we've been discussing uh, there aren't so many people who are um, able to know or fight the death of asylum, although there are people fighting it, which I also write about in the book. So, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in this book contemplating kind of the meaning of death. And I think it's um, it's fitting because people who are moving in these ways um, are really treated as, as less than human and... Um, exposed to incredibly harmful practices and often, you know, do take their own lives or talk about their time in detention, um, which can be, you know, pro very prolonged for many years um, as, a, as a period of non-living or a period when their life is suspended. Um, and in the book, I write about some of the ways that people interact with that notion um, and yeah, so it's really, it's also engaged with a lot of writing by scholars like Lisa Cacho, who are writing about social death, um, and you know, how people make sense of their own existence in these kind of less than human harmful spaces. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so I think that that is a really good segue into, um, thinking about this island, externalization because of course the purpose of that kind of externalization isn't just to make asylum seeking more difficult but also to obscure to activists to scholars to the public um, the kind of violence that's being done in their name um, and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, maybe just how you kind of came to see the archipelagic nature um, of of this obscuring asylum. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so 
I arrived, um, I arrived at islands and island detention as a migration studies scholar, um, looking to understand an empirical phenomenon, which was why were people talking about um, islands so much in um, interviews and research that I was doing on borders and border externalization. That's how I arrived at this research, and in particular in Australia. When I was in in Australia researching um, border externalization, people were talking to me a lot about um, this detention facility that was being built at the time on Christmas Island, which is Australian overseas territory. And there, I hadn't been to Christmas Island yet, but there was lots of rhetoric about it being like the like Australia's Guantanamo Bay. Um, and even um, I remember when I was doing before I went to Australia when I was doing research in Canada, I remember some of the authorities I was interviewing, you know, joking about, um, oh, you know, if only we had an island like Australia does that we could detain on. And and more seriously, they were talking about they actually looked into detaining on ships because they didn't have an island um, and they needed spaces to detain. And this kind of search for sites of detention is something that accompanies the criminalization of asylum seekers and the, the kinds of responses that, that we've been talking about. So, yeah, so people were talking about islands a lot. And then, lo and behold, there were there were more and more cases of governments detaining people on islands. And so I became interested in this. And I remember early on uh, when the first couple of times that I that I talked with people or that I gave presentations about this phenomenon of detention on islands, some people really rejected this connection that I was making, um, p- including people in the UN High Commissioner for Refugees who said to me, you know, that is highly coincidental. <laughs> that is not something you should be studying. Um, but again, I, I wasn't trying to speculate that this um, that this was any predictive kind of model. Um, I was studying something that seemed to be an empirical phenomenon. But through writing the book and actually doing the research, I learned, you know, obviously that it was so much more than that. Um, and I think, you know, islands function in the geographical imagination as this place where authorities think they might be able to hide something, as you said, um, or control something or lots of things. Uh, in the case of detaining people on remote islands that most people, you know, who are on mainland territories will never be able to visit and don't have the resources to access Um it's easier to control the flow of people, the flow of information about what's happening there, um, access to legal representation, uh, or all kinds of information in both directions, right? Both about what's happening in detention there and also what's happening in, in the rest of the world um, where people might require information in order to make claims for asylum or require you know, uh, interpreters or require uh, legal representation. So it's kind of an extreme form of things that are happening everywhere that people are detained, certainly. And, you know, the islands uh, where I did research have histories of denying access to journalists, denying access to human rights monitors and other people 
Um, so, so again, we see this kind of capitalizing on the fact that they're geographically remote and, and taking that to extremes. That's taken to extremes in all kinds of ways. Um, I mean, it's extremely expensive to carry out people's detention on an island, um, to set up the infrastructure for detaining um, and potentially for processing claims. So there's something, um, there's something both extreme and also absurd and irrational that has always called my attention to this to this phenomenon of detaining people on islands. Um, but I don't think anyone now would deny that there's something more um, than the kind of ad hoc um, coincidental detention of people on islands. This um, practice has grown more extensive and it continues now um, with governments, you know, looking to and building detention facilities on islands. And not only in the countries that you mentioned, um, you know, the kind of countries with a lot of resources and histories of refugee resettlement and asylum processing, like, and, and that consider themselves part of, quote unquote, a community of states like Australia, the US, Canada, the UK, for example, but also, um, uh, for example, um, Bangladesh has been building up the silt island of Bazanchar to move Rohingya refugees there from Cox's Bazaar um, and has recently moved many people by boat and is using, there's been lots of criticism of, of that um, use of the silt island because it's in an environmentally precarious place. Um, and the notion is that people's mobility can be further controlled. In other words, once people are on the island, either they, um, they're not allowed to leave unless they agree to return home. And that's often what's essentially in effect when people are detained remotely on islands. So I, I came um, to islands as a migration studies scholar, but I discovered a wonderful field, which is island studies. Um, and and that is to say that islands are incredibly rich and fascinating and diverse places um, to study, you know, meanings of home, meanings of community, meanings of mobility, meanings of asylum seeking and safe haven and meanings of detention. Thank you. Um, and that's horrifying to hear that um, people are being put in such precarious circumstances, having been moved from already really um, difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I want to zero in for a second on this question of expense, because you tell a lot of um, really powerful stories about um, just how much money is being spent sort of in our names as taxpayers um, in, in these wealthy countries um, to do things that you know, aren't helping anyone, aren't particularly effective, um, and really only seem to be geared towards increasing the suffering um, of asylum seekers. And there's one story in particular about um, a pregnant woman who was detained on Christmas Island. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what it's like to be pregnant on Christmas Island or probably have any sort of medical conditions that they can't treat there. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think this speaks to the, again, to the absurdity um, and also the inhumane nature of what's happening. So 
once you decide to detain on a very remote island like Christmas Island, an island where there there were when they started detaining there um, only a few flights in and out of the island per week. Um, it's it's notoriously difficult to get to Christmas Island either by boat or by plane. Um, it's a very small island uh, runway to land on. And notoriously, when flights depart from Perth, Australia, on the western coast of Australia, it's about a five-hour flight. So they don't necessarily know when they depart, if they're going to have a clear, um, a clear enough day for landing. And so there are a lot of stories of flights um, getting there and then turning around and returning um, back to Perth. And at some point, they actually stopped serving alcohol on those flights for a while because people were so rowdy and angry and anxious and inebriated, inebriated by the time they returned to Australia that they had to bring in guards. So these are sort of some of the little stories that you learn um, along the way to give people a sense of just how remote the island, how remote the island is. Um, so it's also the case that there's not a lot of infrastructure, medical infrastructure on the island. There's no hospital. There's basically a clinic. And so actually for all women on Christmas Island uh, who are pregnant, when they reach a certain point in their pregnancy um, before it's no longer safe to fly, they're actually all flown to the mainland to have their babies and then eventually returned to Christmas Island. And so um, for people who have complicated health issues or just women who are pregnant, that means um, being detained on remote island on, on the remote island of Christmas Island is going to involve more travel during their pregnancy. Um, and so I remember talking with activists and advocates in Australia who were following what was happening to people on Christmas Island. Um, and there was one woman I met who was essentially recording and documenting the number of times that women were being flown back and forth during one pregnancy, um, back and forth to detention on chartered flights. Um, at that time, the Australian government was hiring a lot of chartered flights to move people around. And so activists spent a lot of time trying to follow people's movements on chartered flights because they would disappear through the detention system via these chartered flights um, and have to be relocated. So, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine as a person who's who's had a couple of babies, um, you know, the stress, first of all, being in detention while you're pregnant, um, not being near, you know, medical professionals and, and having to be flown on this lengthy flight every time you have a, a, a an issue. Um, and the dedication in terms of resources to keeping someone detained remotely when we know that there are, in fact, detention facilities across Australia, um, including in Perth, next to right next to the airport. Um, so it is kind of shocking to contemplate that dedication, if that's how we, or that investment, if we think about how resources are being invested. And, you know, that's an extreme example, but it's true of most aspects of life um, and what it is to sustain life in a detention facility um, in a very remote but small community that just doesn't have the infrastructure for it. So um, at the time that we did research on Christmas Island, there were in fact three sites where detention was being carried out. 
Uh, one was the high security facility, which is the one that I mentioned um, being constructed earlier, which in and of itself is kind of an absurd thing um, to build a high security detention center on an island that's almost impossible to reach. Um, and that has such a small local community that people generally know each other and would know if someone had escaped the detention center. Um, the rough, the waters are very rough around Christmas Island. So it's very difficult, you know, traveling by boat. Again, you have to arrive on the island through a specific port. Um, and there are lots of, you know, reportings of, um, drownings over the years. So I think, um, to sort of paint the picture of, of how extreme and how absurd it is, um, and the lengths that Australia has gone to detain to detain people, Christmas Island is a is a really important example. And there there seems to be kind of an irrational dedication, as you describe it, to um, kind of maintaining these islands, right? That um, there's something there's something special about. Um, island detention, that high security detention on the Australian mainland can't achieve. And I'm really curious, kind of from your experience becoming an island studies scholar, um, and you have this really great um, description in in the book, you say, what is an island or what is a prison but an island? Um, So there's something really kind of metaphorically or ontologically powerful about the idea of an island. why do you think that's captured the imagination of these professionals whose job it is to to contain asylum seeking? Well, of course, there's a much longer history of building prisons on islands. So I do think it's the idea that geography can somehow do some of the work of isolating people um, and that there's this quote unquote natural fit between, you know, building a detention facility on an island. Of course, there are lots of other reasons why those facilities end up there from, you know, geography and proximity of, of travel routes and interceptions to the fact that detention is a lucrative industry. And it's difficult for small island communities without a lot of sources of income to eventually say no to the arrival of this industry. Um, again, here, Christmas Island is, is a good example. Um, things were booming economically on the island at the height of detention there. So I mentioned that the island didn't have the infrastructure um, to sustain these three detentions facilities and the growth that they represented in the number of people on the island and requiring resources and using electricity, using water, requiring housing um, in terms of kind of the secondary industries needed to sustain detention. So lots of people were coming into the island um, to serve the facility in different ways, to be employed at the facility, um, to be processing claims, interpreting so there was this kind of buildup of people, both in detention and also outside of detention. And we met people who were, you know, building water infrastructure, building all kinds of infrastructure around the island, um, and lots of islanders who were able to, you know, um, either be employed primarily or secondarily through these industries. And that's a really fraught relationship that I think people 
um, on islands where we did research have had with the detention industry. Often there are histories of people protesting the buildup in the beginning of detention, um, but eventually having a more ambivalent relation to it because it does bring more economic prosperity to the community and to individuals or households within it. So for example, on Christmas Island, there was such a housing crisis for all the people who were coming in that any kind of spare room that people had to rent um, would would bring in um, funds. Uh, people were building small little kind of properties um, to house people. And then there was a community center where people would that people would contact to find out, you know, where these kind of places to stay or rooms to rent were. So you can imagine, again, just the impact um, of detention on a small island community. But you were asking me about islands and detention more generally. And of course, detention isn't the only relationship that islands have to migration. Um, lots of scholars, scholars like Mimi Scheller, have written about you know, all kinds of mobilities and migrations that happen on islands. Um, and they're not always these kind of dark stories of, you know, outside forces coming in um, and building and, and detaining people. But there is something, again, to the, the history of, I think, building prisons on islands um, that holds them in the geographical imagination as these sites for detention and for things to happen that may or may not, you know, be publicized um, when people imagine um, what's what goes on there or what, you know, how they carry out detention there. But the other thing I wanted to say is this is where islands became so interesting to me, not just as a site um, and, and as a community, but also in terms of the kind of resounding metaphor of the island, right? The idea that 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 detention and containment of people's mobility is taken to extreme there so that you have the island within the island. And then um, in the research, I found this recurrence of kind of islanding or, or forms of containment within those facilities. People were constantly being separated in different ways or um, put into solitary confinement so that you would have islands within islands within islands. And over time, what I began to see was that um, these practices really resonated with what was happening to people all over the place who were being detained um, on mainland territories, that they were being detained in remote places, and that this remote detention really functions um, to isolate them geographically and curtail their access to all kinds of resources and communities and information so that um, the island becomes something of a metaphor for how people are being treated generally and also for how bordering is happening. And in fact, there's this thriving literature, sub-literature within migration studies of people talking about journeys, writing about people's journeys. And you see these, um, this metaphor, I think it's not always called an island, but we see it over and over again where the transnational journey um, has really broken, I, I hope, uh, forever, that old model of assimilation, right, where people somehow are making some forward journey into something, into a place, into a community or society and becoming like it or whatever. Um, the, the geography of the journey is no longer anything like that kind of chronological trajectory, right? 
Um, people have much more circuitous and circular journeys. Um, they take years. They involve crossing many borders, um, and they involve many periods of stasis and limbo and detention, often in multiple national contexts. And so, uh, as I write about in the book, if the primary spatial metaphor through which we understand migration across the border was ever the crossing of a line, um, that is no longer the case. It's really much more about, I think, periods of containment and confinement that people experience along the way. And I think a lot of scholars are writing about this now. That's a really important point um, and hopefully something that's going to stay with people. You end the book um, in striking a kind of hopeful note, um, which (laughs) feels a little bit alien to the 2021 world we're living in. But um, I think one thing that geographers are really good at doing is saying, you know, it's it's not just that these practices of obscuring and containing are happening in isolation, but of course, you know, people are working on them and contesting them in different ways. So you talk about all of these kind of nitty gritty data collection practices, counting, mapping, um, and remembering kind of um, grouped into that, as well as um, organizing, visiting, and protesting um, to kind of throw some light on what's happening. Um, And you, of course, are a scholar activist working in this field. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, your work as a scholar activist and the different organizations you've worked with um, and what kind of what kind of activism is happening to contest the death of asylum. Sure. Um, Yeah, you're right. You know, the the penultimate chapter of the book is um, the place where I find you know, hope in an otherwise rather um, dark area of research, which is in um, different creative forms of activism that are happening to fight detention and to fight the death of asylum. And I think um, these continue and have been fueled in in some ways um, that are important by the arrival of the pandemic, right? Like, as dark and difficult as the pandemic has been, it has thrown open some questions and uncertainty about um, the, the, the global detention industry in ways that um, have been, you know, not always obvious. Like some countries have released a lot of people from detention while others have doubled down, you know, certainly closing their borders, increasing their deportations, um, and not changing their detention practices. So, I mean, we're still in this, speaking of limbo, like still in this, I think, suspended period of not knowing exactly um, how or where this is all headed in terms of COVID-19 and um, people seeking asylum and and entering borders. But I think... um, you know, restricted though we all are right now in terms of mobility. Um, There are people out there still doing really important work highlighting what's happening, um, particularly to people seeking asylum. And, you know, really, I think, shaming um, governments like Canada and the U.S. who have shut down, um, 
who have shut down the border to the most precarious or who have exposed people um, in detention in incredibly negligent ways, you know, to the virus, even, you know, deporting people who have COVID-19, which was suspected of, you know, fueling spread in countries where people were being deported. Um, so on stepping back, on the one hand, I, I think there's a lot to be pessimistic about and and worried about, particularly statistically, right? At the exact moment that we have the highest rates of displacement globally, we're also seeing the lowest rates of refugee resettlement in, in the last couple of decades. And on the whole, the arrival of the pandemic has been incredibly devastating for people um, who are seeking asylum. But that hasn't crushed social movements, and it certainly hasn't crushed um, you know, those fighting for the abolition of detention. I think it's provided more fuel in some cases and brought to light um, again, the kinds of inhumane and absurd and extreme, um, harmful, extremely harmful practices um, that are happening, you know, not only on islands, uh, but everywhere. And um, I mean, another place where I find uh, hope and inspiration is in the incredibly, you know, resilient and creative practices um, of people who have themselves survived detention. And one of the people I've had the opportunity to talk with um, on a few occasions over the last couple of years, although always remotely (laughs) because he was in detention and now he's in New Zealand, is the wonderful writer Behrouz Bouchani, um, who, you know, um, wrote the award-winning memoir, No Friend But the Mountains, and who made collaboratively with Arash Sarvastani, the film um, Choka, Please Tell Us the Time, which he made clandestinely using his cell phone and WhatsApp and sending footage um, to Arash when he was in detention on Manus Island. And one of um, the favorite, my favorite kind of conversations that I've had an opportunity to be part of in recent months, you know, during the pandemic, when I haven't been able to go anywhere, um, has been with with um, Beirut and his collaborator, Omid Tofiliari, and they're writing about Manus prison theory, which really has emerged from the time um, that Beirut spent in detention and the kind of political work that he's done in the time since. And I was part of a a wonderful workshop that um, scholars in Melbourne, Australia, put together uh, called The Politicization of Asylum. And um, we were all engaging um, with Manus prison theory and the idea that um, really that detention doesn't operate in isolation, although um, one is meant to think that, right, particularly in the ways that it isolates people and isolates them in an extreme form on an island. But in fact, um, Beirut and Omid are so good at drawing out connections between that those racialized forms of containment and exclusion and bordering and how they resonate and connect in important ways with many people's exclusion um, and oppression and um, imprisonment. 
And so I've been really inspired by, um, by his writing and his political work and, um, and by colleagues in Australia and the work that they're doing um, to always remember that there's something much bigger going on than any one empirical location or any one detention facility or any one country either. Um, so, for example, I have a lot of conversations um, here in Canada you know, with different people who might not know much about, um, you know, even about the Canada-U.S. border and the ways that asylum is being so heavily politicized there. Um, like in other countries, I think asylum is something that people just don't hear about and just don't necessarily know about unless there is some, you know, major issue that that brings it into, you know, the, the news and into public discourse. Um, but I think it's important for us to remember that this is a, a global and transnational issue um, that organizing around it is transnational um, and that, you know, detention is, is transnational, externalization is transnational. And so the fights that we're fighting, you know, both locally and regionally and nationally are also global in nature. And it's, it's so important for us to have these conversations across, across borders and across communities. Thank you for that really inspiring answer. Um, so as we're wrapping up here, I do want to, as I told you ahead of time, sort of force in a, an Americentric epilogue to your book. Um, of course, you've, you've lived through the transition from the Harper administration to Trudeau in Canada and seen, um, I guess, the, the possibilities of center-left approaches to asylum and immigration and also their limits. Um, and those of us who are uh, Americans or associated with the U.S. in some way um, have, you know, maybe gotten a lot of hope from the abolition, abolition movement, um, from the resounding chorus of abolish ICE that we've been hearing um, but also sort of some disappointment that we're already experiencing in real time with um, the new administration's approach to asylum seekers um, and the ginning up of sort of caravan rhetoric, you know, wave influx rhetoric um, that's really, really dangerous. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering just what you think as you're observing these events in real time. I guess as a geographer, I'll go to issues of time and space. Um, and I think, you know, one thing I'll say is that, uh, and that I've observed across different national settings with regard to, say, more aggressive and exclusionary border enforcement practices uh, and detention practices, once policies are put in place, um, it's really hard to undo them. And there isn't a lot of political will to undo them. And so the story that you just mentioned, or the stories of the shift from the Harbor to Trudeau administrations, the shift, we could go back, you know, into the Obama administration and how disappointed people were um, that he became the deporter in chief, as he's often been called. And now, you know, we're going from the extreme of things that happened uh, with regard to enforcement under the Trump administration into the Biden administration. And we're seeing these kind of early glimpses that uh, things aren't 
easily or readily or quickly undone that need to be undone. And so I think uh, we're at that, that threshold, that moment of kind of holding our breath and waiting to see what happens. And I think that's a larger threshold that we're in in the, in the pandemic, right? Um, we're all kind of waiting. We're waiting to see what happens. Are the shutdowns, um, the, effectively the shutdown of asylum seeking in North America, is that going to hold or is that going to open up again? And that leads me into what I want to say about space, which is that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about now since I finished the book about the afterlife of asylum and what we're left with. Right. Um, And I think what I see happening and what people are starting to write about um, is the kind of geopolitical deals that are happening between states. So the constant rhetoric of the, the third country for resettlement, right? So if Australia draws the line and won't allow people, other countries eventually step in and diplomatically and quietly resettle people. And, you know, one, so, so it's increasingly common for there to be these quiet kind of bilateral agreements between countries they are often not public where someone offers to resettle those that are, you know, people who are refugees have have had their have proven their cases in the terms of the convention, um, and yet have been, you know, refused resettlement by the country that won't allow them to travel there by boat, like Australia, right? So. Um, um, notoriously, the U- the U.S. and Australia entered into one of these arrangements in Obama's final months in office, and then um, there was this kind of very public conversation that Trump had by phone with the Australian Prime Minister, where he allegedly hung up on him, and then the Guardian published the transcript, uh, where he called this a really dumb deal. But what happened is that quietly, the United States honored that deal. And at the same time that it was shutting down refugee uh, resettlement under the Trump administration, it quietly resettled um, several hundred people from Manus Island and Nauru through this deal. And I think those deals are increasingly common and something we don't hear about enough. And so I'm interested in those as one of the things that is the afterlife of asylum, one of the things that is taking the place of, you know, broader, um, what people call durable solutions uh, to resettling people. But the other thing I want to say about geography and geopolitics um, is not is not an optimistic story with regards to North America. I mean, what we see happening is that Canada shut down the border, the U.S. shut down the border. As is often the case, you know, this was happening already long before the pandemic hit and the pandemic became the crisis that enabled the latest round of, you know, hardening of the border. And so what we see is that asylum seekers are increasingly stuck in Mexico or turned back um, to countries in Central America. And so kind of like a domino effect, step by step, Canada, you know, has an agreement to turn people back to the U.S. And although it says that it's had assurances um, that those people won't be detained and deported, there have been cases that have come to light of that happening. And no one knows how many people that's happened to. And we know that the U.S. similarly has an agreement with Mexico and the whole controversial, you know, remain in Mexico program and entered into agreements with Central America. And even though 
um, the Biden administration has uh, undone some of those. I think much of the aftermath of all of that is still very much in effect, and it remains to be seen what might be undone. So um, it's not a it's not a good news moment, I think, around asylum seeking um, in North America. And I've been working on a, a research project with um, refugee advocates and practitioners and scholars working across the Canada-U.S. border. And, and from its inception, which was before the pandemic, long before the pandemic hit, um, people were really interested in collaborating with people in Mexico and farther south because, precisely because um, so much has been hollowed out in terms of refugee resettlement in the U.S. that those networks are no longer in place. And it's very clear that exclusions across North America are, are reverberating you know, farther and farther away, which is always the case. Um, but we're living through, I think, the latest round of this now. I'm sorry to end on a <laughs> somewhat negative note. Um, but I think these are the these are the cycles and histories of exclusion that we tend, um, you know, to live through uh, and have seen over time in North America. Um, and so it's important for us to keep remembering, you know, um, how they unfold historically will tell us something about our present um, and also alert us to what kinds of things to be paying attention to now. Well, Alison, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about these really difficult issues. I would commend all of our listeners um, to take a look at your book because it's really, really important, particularly in this moment. So thank you so much. Thanks, Dino. I, I appreciate that. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to chat with you. That's it for today's show. The Death of Asylum is now available at your favorite bookshop. And you can find a link to Allison's podcast, Displacements, in the show notes. Keep an eye out for her documentary film, produced in collaboration with Lisa Molomat, which is called Safe Haven, and may be premiering near you soon. You can follow Allison on Twitter at Allison Mounts. I'm at Dino Kadij. And you can follow the show at New Books Geog. And we'll talk to you next time on New Books in Geography.